The following sermon is brought to you by ThePreachersVault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. Last large day evening, we looked at the great, the profound Roman letter. We discussed that letter, outlining it and saying something of what it said in its setting and in its context and as it speaks to us today. Tonight we want to look at another great letter from the Apostle to the Gentiles, and this letter coming just a little bit later than the Roman letter, and coming in a period of Paul's life that we know as a time of imprisonment, probably the first Roman imprisonment, uh, which came at about 60 to 62 or some say 61 to 63, right in the early 60s of the first century. During this period of time, the Ephesian letter, Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon were written. And tonight I'd like to think with you for just a little while about the four-chapter letter to the church in Colossae, the Colossian letter. Let me recommend that you read this little letter and just sit down, it'll only take a few moments, and read through the four chapters. At the very outset tonight, I want to read from chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, a part of a letter that I believe is at the very heart of the letter's message. And then a bit later in the lesson, we'll come back to these verses and look at the great message that Paul writes to the church in Colossae. You have your testament, you might want to follow as I began to read in verse 15 of Colossians 1, as Paul here speaks of Christ and tells us of Jesus that he is the image of the invisible God, of Christ, Paul said, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him were all things created in the heavens and upon the earth, things visible and things invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things have been created through him and unto him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, the firstborn who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Verse 19, for it was the good pleasure of the Father that in him should all the fullness dwell, and through him to reconcile all things unto himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, were the things upon the earth are things in the heavens. We'll come back to this passage in a moment, but before we do, I want us to note together Paul's method, because there is a certain methodology, there is a certain kind of approach that is evident in the letter. And to appreciate this, we need to say just a little bit about the context, the historical situation to which this particular letter addresses itself. Then I'd like for us to look at the message. What is the central message that we have here? The verses that we've just read 
coupled with a great text in chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, which may well be the climactic point in the letter, the crescendo, the great mountain peak. Take heed, beware, take heed, lest there be any, Paul writes, that makes spoil of you through his philosophy and vain deceit, after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And in him you're made full, in him you're complete. In him you're made full, who is the head of all principality and power. If you'll link that passage with the one that we've read from chapter 1, you have the very heart of the message in Colossians. So we have then a certain method, we have a certain message, and then, particularly in chapter 3, we have emphasis upon manner of life, how the Christian is to live, and what are the practical implications of the great truths that Paul, guided by the Spirit, gives in this letter. But to appreciate the method, and we'd like to talk about that first, we must know something about the situation the historical context, the conditions existing in Colossae in the early part of the 60s of the first century when Paul writes the letter. Now, Paul is a prisoner. This is one of the prison letters. Right at the very close of the letter, Paul calls attention to this, and in the last verse of chapter 4, the last verse of the letter, verse 18, Remember my bonds, grace be with you. In these prison letters, Paul will use a word, halysis. We have it, I believe, here. We have it in Ephesians 6 and 20 where he talks about himself as an ambassador in bonds. This word describes a relatively short bit of chain, one end of which would ordinarily be fastened to the prisoner, the other end of which would be affixed to a guard, and the guard would be periodically relieved at his post of duty. Paul, then, is in a situation like that. He's a prisoner. He's in chains. He's in bonds. And the letter closes with Paul saying, Remember my bonds. Now, Paul has not yet been to Colossae. Oftentimes, as you know, Paul will write letters to churches with whom he has a personal acquaintance. This is, of course, one of the marked characteristics of the Philippian letter. Paul helped to plant that church. Paul's back was beaten and Paul's feet made fast in the stocks in that Philippian jailhouse as a consequence of his preaching there. Paul had had contact with them and over a decade's time they had sent to Paul's necessity and had demonstrated their concern for him. You have uh, Paul having been in Corinth and writing on the basis of personal acquaintance and contact. The same thing could be said of others of the letters. But as it was true in the case of the Roman letter, that at the time that he wrote the letter, he'd not been to Rome. He does get there, Acts chapter 28. At the time that he writes this letter, he's not been to Colossae. He does not know this church in that sense. And in the early verses of chapter 2, in the very first verse and following, of chapter 2, he talks about Laodicea and as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. And apparently his Colossian readers would fall into that same category. How then does Paul know about the situation there? Well, of course, he's an inspired man. 
He writes in the words which the Holy Spirit teacheth, 1 Corinthians 2.13. This is true, but this is not all the answer that we ought to give to the question, how does he know about the situation there? Epaphras is one from this Colossian church. He's mentioned by name in chapter 1. I want to say about verse 7. He's mentioned again in chapter 4 and verse 12. A striking passage there where Paul talks about Epaphras striving in his prayers for you. And a little side lesson that I would just inject hurriedly here is that that's what prayer really ought to be. Not a kind of easy formal prayer, but there ought to be a real striving in petition. And that is the kind of praying that Epaphras did for the Colossians. Apparently, Epaphras had made a trip to Rome and had talked to Paul, the prisoner there, and had told him about the situation in Colossae and perhaps about the situation in Laodicea also. You see, Colossae, Laodicea, uh, were situated in the Lycus Valley in Asia Minor. And so the situation in this area is described. And Paul, guided by the Holy Spirit, responds to that particular situation. Now it's important that we understand that the letters of the New Testament are, though given by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, called forth by particular problems. The Bible, the New Testament, did not fall from heaven bound in Morocco binding printed on India paper with the 27 books all together just like that. But in, for example, the early 50s of the first century, Paul writes the church in Thessalonica. Perhaps a little bit later, some would say a little bit earlier, he writes to the churches of Galatia. In the decade between 60 to 70, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are written. Coming along in the late 50s, Paul writes, for example, to Rome. Earlier, he'd written to Corinth. In the early 60s, he writes to uh, uh, the church in Colossae, to the saints in Ephesus, to the saints at Philippi with their bishops and deacons. Near the close of the century, in about the last decade, John is writing the Gospel of John, the letters of John, the book of Revelation. And these letters and these books are written in relation to particular needs. And though the message is a timeless one, an ageless one, and it speaks tonight with pertinence and relevance to our age, it comes in a particular uh, historical context. And to best understand it, we need to understand that situation. So Epaphras has gone to Rome and he pictures the problem. And the problem seems to be something like this. The Lycus Valley has become a hotbed of heresy. The heresy seems to be a mixed heresy. There is a Jewish element in it because one of the problems in Colossae seems to be the problem of circumcision and the binding of that upon male Gentile converts. And so Paul explains in chapter 2 of Colossians, verse 11 and verses following, that we have a circumcision not made with hands in the putting off of the body of our trespasses, the twelfth verse, buried with him in baptism, wherein you're also risen with him through faith in the working or operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. 
Colossians 2, 11 through 13 makes it clear you don't need physical circumcision. Well, that's the kind of thing that a Jewish element would try to bind. But you see, sometimes Jewish elements and Jewish heresies were mixed with other things. And there would seem to be here an early philosophical era. Some would call it an early form of Gnosticism, though many would insist that it was not called Gnosticism this early. Whatever it was called, it seems to be an incipient beginning form of what later is known as Gnosticism. Now, we don't really need to let that word frighten us. The Gnostic was one, when you get right down to the word itself, Gnostic, Gnosis, the Gnostic was one who was uh, proud of his knowledge. And that really, the word knowledge or the idea of knowledge is in the word. I could illustrate it simply by saying that the agnostic, and the A prefix negates, the agnostic is the fellow who says, I don't know. The Gnostic was the fellow who said, I do know. If I might oversimplify a little bit, he was proud of his knowledge. And he was one who felt that matter is evil and that this earth, made of matter, was not created by the highest deity at all but by some inferior agency or deity. He felt that the body itself is inherently evil. He felt that the eternal God could not come in a fleshly body. And if you'll look very carefully at the letter, if you'll notice, for example, that Paul said, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Colossians 2.9. Bodily. If you'll notice that Paul emphasizes, as John later emphasizes, that the Christ came in the flesh and that the fullness of the Godhead, the totality of deity and divine attributes, dwelt in him bodily. You'll see here a rather direct thrust at this particular era. So you have then a situation in which there are false teachers in the Lycus Valley, in Colossae, in Laodicea, perhaps. And they seem to be saying the simple gospel is fine as far as it goes, but it really doesn't go far enough. Judaism has something to offer. There may be various philosophical systems with something to offer. And so take the best of all of it. And so you have a kind of, of syncretism here as it's all brought together and merged and melted. And, of course, Paul sees this as he's inspired of the Holy Spirit as a serious and potentially fatal threat to the purity of the faith and the all-sufficiency of our Lord Jesus Christ to save. Paul insists in this letter that if you, brother or sister in Christ, if you have Jesus and if you have God's revelation in Christ, and you have redemption, and you have reconciliation, chapter 1, verse 20, in Christ, and you have this revelation of God and His nature and will through Christ, that's all you need. Chapter 2, verse 10, in Him you're made full. You're complete in Him, who is the head of all principality and power. Now, I said we'd say something about Paul's method. Let me do that.
Paul does not begin right at the start saying, you don't need physical circumcision. You don't find that in the first verse. You don't find that in the first chapter. Paul doesn't start by saying these philosophers and heretics that are going around saying that matter is evil and therefore the body is bad and therefore the eternal God could not come in a body like ours. They're all wrong. He doesn't say that in the first verse or the second verse. Or the fifth verse, he doesn't say that anywhere in the first chapter. Now he comes around to that. He makes that very clear, but that's not the way he starts. I heard a gospel preacher one time, who'd been preaching for many, many years, tell about an experience that he'd had when he was a very young man and a young preacher. He said, as a young man and a young preacher, I was very fond, he explained, of startling introductions. I was sold on the principle, you've got to get them in the first five minutes or you'll never have them. And the best way to do that is really use a shocker. So I got up in a community and congregation with which I was unfamiliar. I assumed it must have been in a meeting. And I was going to preach on the sin of Achan in the Old Testament. You remember how he took the Babylonish garment the 200 shekels of silver and the wedge of gold uh, when they went against Jericho, and that's why they failed against Ai, you know. Well, he said I was going to preach on that, so I got up, and my very first sentence was, Achan took the money. Well, it just so happened that there was a brother in that congregation by the name of Achan, and it just so happened that he was the treasurer. And... It just so happened, unfortunately, that his actions had been suspect in the eyes of some, and that's the way this brother started out. Now, he did it accidentally because he didn't know there was a brother Aiken in the church. He was talking about the Old Testament Aiken, you see. Some people do things like that, and they don't do it accidentally. They do it with malice aforethought. They plan it that way. Well, brethren, that's, that's the way as... As one little fellow at our house used to put it, that's the way you don't do that. And that's the way Paul didn't do that. Sometimes we have to be direct and sometimes we even have to be negative, but Paul doesn't start that way. And that's what I want you to see about the method. For example, in verse 3, Paul says what he says in almost every letter. I thank my God for you. I've heard of your faith, verse 4. Paul hadn't been there yet. But I know about it, I've heard about it, and I'm happy about what I hear, and I know about how you've sounded forth the word about verse 7. I know about your faith, verse 4, and I thank God for you. Now, I know many of you know that Paul will ordinarily follow a letter form characteristic in the first century. And after you have the salutation or the prescript, as you have it here in the first two verses, then you have a thanksgiving. But Paul doesn't just follow that mechanically. He's really grateful for them. Not only that, but when Paul does get into the doctrinal discussion, Paul does not start out with the negative. When he finally comes to that, he has carefully laid the groundwork. He has prepared for it. And when he finally tells us that you don't need a circumcision made with hands, we're all ready to accept that. 
because by that time he has thrilled us and he has filled us with the blessing and with the bounty that we have in Jesus. And when we see what we have in Jesus, we don't want Jewish ritual and we don't want Jewish practice and we don't want Judaism and we don't want Gnosticism and we don't want any human speculation or philosophy because look how wonderful it is just to have Jesus and the revelation of God through Jesus. But I wish we could learn a lesson there. There is a lesson in the approach, in the methodology, if I could use that term, in the way Paul goes at it, to state it simply. Now, maybe we still don't see the point, so let me be real practical here and let me illustrate. The fellow comes up to me and he says, Avon, why don't you use instruments of music in worship? All right, now, how am I going to react to that? Well, I could start right out by saying in Ephesians 5.19, we have a passage which reads, Be not drunken with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Colossians 3.16 parallels that. And we could read that or quote it. James 5.13, Is any merry, let him sing psalms. 1 Corinthians 14.15, What is it then? I'll pray with the Spirit and the understanding. I'll sing with the Spirit and the understanding also. I could say for six centuries, you just don't read about that practice among professed Christians. I could make a historical argument. I could start right in on that point. But I'm convinced, brother, about nine times out of eight, that'd be a mistake. That'd be a mistake. You know what that'd be like? Well, that'd be like trying to hammer away on the roofing before you'd ever poured the foundation. That's what that'd be like. So what does Paul do here? He starts out telling these people about Jesus. And then he gets around to Judaism and the fact that you don't need it. Then he gets around to physical circumcision. Then he gets around to human philosophy and tradition of men and vain deceit and human speculation about the origin of the universe and anything and everything else that you don't need. But he doesn't start there. And when a fellow comes up and says, well, what about Music in worship. Now, I believe that's important. Some people don't think so. I believe it is because the Word speaks of it. I believe it relates to the Lordship of Jesus. I believe it relates to the all-sufficiency of the Word. But I don't believe that that's the place to start. And if I'm wise, and a lot of times I've been otherwise, but if I'm wise, I'm going to say, that's a good question. And I appreciate your asking. And I do want to talk with you about that. But first, and here's where we start pouring the foundation before we hammer away on the roof, but first, let's talk about what really is authority. Let's talk about the inspiration of this Word. And let's not just talk about the inspiration of this Word, but the all-sufficiency of this Word. Let me tell you something. I'm quite convinced that if we can cause a man to see the inspiration and the all-sufficiency of this word. 1 Corinthians 4, 6 is translated in the American Standard. I've transferred these things to Apollos and myself in a figure that you may learn in us not to go beyond the things that are written. If we can see the inspiration and the all-sufficiency of the word, we'll not have much problem with music in worship or the action of baptism or when we partake of the Lord's Supper or a lot of other things. But if I'm not convinced about the inspiration of the Word, and if I'm not convinced about 
the all-sufficiency of the Word, then there are just a lot of questions that can be very, very perplexing and troubles. And so we start with the Lordship of Jesus, the inspiration of His Word, His authority as revealed in the Word, the all-sufficiency of this Word. And Paul begins not on the negative, no, no, you don't need circumcision, no, you don't need Gnostic speculation, but Paul begins on the positive note, look at Jesus. And there's a lesson there. Let's look at the message, 115 and following, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Who is he? What is he? What is his nature? Even in the Gospels, we see varied views. He's a good man. He deceiveth the people. My Lord and my God, Thomas cries out in John chapter 20. Truly this man was the Son of God, the centurion at the foot of the cross cries out. But others were saying he deceives the people. Who is he? What is he? Where did he come from? Paul answers, he's the image of the invisible God. Image from the word icon, meaning the exact and precise representation. If you want a commentary on what that means, look at Hebrews 1 and 3 where the Hebrews writer said, he is the brightness of the Father's glory, the effulgence of the Father's glory, the very image of of his person or the express image of his substance. The Hebrews writer is saying, and Paul here is saying, that with fullness and precision he reflects God, for he is himself God, divine. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John chapter 1, verse 1 and following, in verse 14, the Word became flesh. John's talking about Jesus. And John said the Word was God. No wonder in John 14, when Philip would say, Show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Jesus could say, Have you been so long time with me, and you've not known me? He that has seen me has seen the Father. He's the image of the invisible God. In Him, Paul later writes here in Colossians, In Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily the totality of divine attributes, the entirety of deity. Why have we been so hesitant to say he's God, even as the Father is God? The inspired writers were not reluctant to say that. Unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. He's called, among other things, mighty God in New Testament writers. Re-echo this emphasis. I am the Father, or one, Jesus can say. John 10, 30, the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. Colossians 1 and 15. Some have mistakenly thought that firstborn here means first created being. The firstborn of all creation. He is not created. He is creator. The next verse goes on to say that in him were all things created, whether visible or invisible, all things in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, all things were made through him and unto him. He is the agent of creation. 
He is the sustainer of creation. He is the object of creation we have in this passage. He then is not created, for he is creator. He is life inherent. He is self-existent. He has always been. What then does this mean, the firstborn of all creation? Well, if you've got your Old Testament, you can check Exodus 4.22, where God speaks of the nation, Israel, and refers to the nation as Israel, my firstborn. Israel, my firstborn son. This does not mean that Israel is the first nation in point of time. And Israel was not the first nation in point of time. But it means this is the people, this is the nation that's first, that has primacy in terms of God and in relation to position and place with God. Some of the Jewish writing and the rabbinic writing and the Talmud it is said of the Father that he is the firstborn. Now they understood that he was eternal. And while that source is not an authoritative one, it illustrates the idea in this usage. Firstborn does not have to mean priority in sense of time, but in the sense of place or position, or as the New English Bible translates it, he has primacy over all creation. He is that one who has the power over all creation. And the following verse goes on to point out that he is creator, that in him were all things created. Any adequate view of creation must see Christ as active in creation. Let us make man in our image, not just the Father, but Father, Son, and Spirit, are involved in creation and New Testament writers speak of Jesus as the agent of creation. Not only here, but you have it again in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Now listen to this. By Him were all things made, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And thou, Lord, over in Hebrews chapter 1, about verse 9 or 10, thou, Lord, hast laid the foundations... There again, reference is made to the creative work of Jesus. But not only is he involved in creation, not only is he creator, but he's sustainer. It's Jesus that causes our universe to be a cosmos rather than a chaos. He is the principle of cohesion in the universe. He, as the Hebrews writer puts it, Hebrews 1 and 3, upholds all things by the word of his power. And here in Colossians 1 and 17, in Him, that is in Christ, all things consist, cohere, hold together. That's true with regard to our physical universe, and we can go beyond that to say He is the principle of cohesion in the church as He brings together Jew and Gentile, in the home, in the family. Later on, Paul talks about wives, submit yourselves to your husbands, Colossians 3.18, Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Colossians 3.19 Children, obey your parents in all things. In the Lord, fathers, provoke not your children, lest they be discouraged. In this part of Colossians, you have the same kind of teaching as in Ephesians chapters 5 and 6. And in all of this, Jesus is the principle of cohesion. He's at the center. 
But here in Colossians 1 and 17, particular stress is upon the fact that he holds all things together, even the material universe. In him, all things consist. It is a Christocentric universe. And he is the principle of cohesion. Before all things and in him all things consist. The next verse talks about his relationship to the church. And we have here really a series of relationships. What's his relationship to the invisible God? What's his relationship to the Father? He's the image of the invisible God. What's his relationship to the universe? He is creator and he is sustainer. He is the one who has primacy over all things created. What is his relationship to the church? He's the head of the body of the church. The firstborn from the dead that in all things he should have the preeminence. He's the head. The church is the body. The church doesn't make the orders. The church takes the orders. And so we don't ask what does the church teach about this. If we mean by that what mandates have been made by the church, for the church doesn't do that. Christ is the head. And again we see the supremacy of Christ. He's the image of the invisible God. He is the creator and sustainer of the universe. He's the head of the body of the church. And he is the firstborn, not just first to be raised. That may be part of it. But he has primacy over death itself. And then in the 19th verse, it was the good pleasure of the Father that in him should all the fullness dwell. There was a word that was a favorite term with some of the early heretics. It was the word pleroma, which meant the fullness. Some of these early false teachers and some of the early Gnostics were very, very fond of this term. And they boasted that we have the fullness of knowledge and the fullness of wisdom. And if you really want to know about the fullness of God, the highest deity, then you need to become an initiate in our system. And Paul uses the word, but he insists that the fullness dwelt in Jesus Christ. And we have a kind of commentary on it in that great passage, 2 and 9 of Colossians, in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He's the image of the invisible God, creator and sustainer of the universe, head of the body, the church. It's the Father's good pleasure that in him should all the fullness dwell. Well, what's his relationship to man? I see his relationship to God. He's the image of the invisible God. In him dwells the fullness of the Godhead. But how is he related to man? How is he related to the man in sin? He's the reconciler. And in verse 20 we read that God reckoned all, reconciled all things into himself by the blood of his cross. The things in heaven, the things on earth reconciled in him, in Christ, and by the blood of his cross. Later on, Paul tells us that the mystery finds culmination and consummation in Christ. And the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Colossians 1.27. In Colossians 2 and 2, he speaks of the mystery, even Christ. In 2 and 3, he tells his readers that in him wells all, or in him you have all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge hidden. Now then, let's just kind of sum up. Let's, let's write the column here and let's get the total down here at the bottom. He's the image of the invisible God. That's his relationship to the Father. And in him dwells all the fullness, the fullness of the Godhead. 
1 and 19, 2 and 9. He is the creator and the sustainer of the universe. He is the object of creation, for all things were made through him and under him, and in him all things consist. The agent, the sustainer, and the object of creation. He's the head of the body, the church. He is the reconciler of the man in sin. God's plan, called by Paul a mystery, which made provision for the Gentiles, once hidden, has now been revealed, and it finds consummation in Christ, so that Paul can speak of the mystery even Christ. Chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. And in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is that great treasury. He is that one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, we're just about ready for a conclusion. Paul is just about ready to mount the very apex of the mountain peak, to stand on the pinnacle, and to shout so that all can hear the unavoidable conclusion, that that we come to, it's inescapable as we see the relationships of Jesus to the Father, to the universe, to the church, to the fullness of deity, to the man in sin, to the mystery, to all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Look at the relationship that he sustains in all of these. And then hear Paul say, take heed, beware, lest there be any that make spoil of you. Let me paraphrase. Don't let some spiritual pirate make you his plunder, his booty, his prey. Beware, take heed, lest any make spoil of you through his philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And in him you're made full. You're complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Friend, there's the conclusion. No wonder Paul can then go on to say you don't need physical circumcision. You don't need the bond written in ordinances which he blotted out, took out of the way, nailed to his cross. Verse 14. You don't need homemade rules, ascetic rules. Touch not, taste not, handle not. Chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. These things, Paul said in the close of the chapter, are not of any value against the indulgence of the flesh. You don't need human speculation, human philosophy. There is nothing that any man in the area of things spiritual, can add by way of any later revelation. Because when you've got Jesus, friends, you've got it all. And that's what Paul is saying. And then he can come to the practical section, and I only touch this briefly and leave it with you. If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind, set your affections on things above and not on things on the earth, for you're dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall we also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, mortify, therefore, crucify, therefore, your members, which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, or passion, desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Paul goes on to say in verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule, or literally umpire in your hearts, wherein do you recall in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And then he goes into the family relationship, 
Wife to husband, husband to wife, love your wife, be not bitter against them. Children to parents, obey them in all things. This is well-pleasing in the Lord. Paul, what are you doing? Well, as always in his letters, there are some practical implications growing out of the great profound doctrine. You have experienced death with Christ. You died with Christ to the rudiments of the world, chapter 2.20. You were buried with him in baptism, chapter 2.12. You were raised with him. Now set your affections on things above and live as one who is an upward looker caught up in a great affection for this all-sufficient Christ, this Lord of glory, this one who is the image of God himself, this one in whom dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily, this one who is the reconciler of the man in sin, the head of the body of the church, the creator and sustainer of the universe, the one in whom the mystery finds consummation and revelation, the one in whom can be found all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I think right before, in a formal sense, we began this service, though really worshiping, I think in a very real sense, we sang, Christ, we do all adore thee. I think if there's anything that ought to strike us and smite our hearts when we come to this great letter to Christians in Colossae is the superiority, the all-sufficiency, the unexcelled beauty, the massive and immense power, the indescribable majesty of Jesus Christ. And yet with all of this, there is that humanity which Paul, even in this letter, emphasizes. In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Forever God, forever man, my Jesus shall endure, and fixed on him my hope remains, eternally secure. He's the answer. He was then in the 60s of the first century. He is now in the 70s of the 20th century. Should the world stand for another millennium or millennia, on and on, he'll still be the answer. The ageless, timeless, eternal Christ. But it may be that you have never linked your life, your love, with him. Alone, we're ineffectual and powerless. With him, we lay claim to that power which is his. And we would plead with you tonight to experience the very death and the very spiritual cutting away of the body of our trespasses that Paul talks about in Colossians 2 when he writes of being buried with him in baptism, wherein you're also risen with him through faith in the working and the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. Wouldn't you experience that spiritual death as a penitent believer turning from sin, confessing his name? Wouldn't you be buried in the liquid grave of baptism and then raised with Christ thereafter to set your mind or your affections on things above. And it may be that some need to come back and renew that love for things above and love for that one who is the living Christ and able to save to the uttermost. If you're responsive to his will tonight in any way, we pray and plead that you'll come now while we stand and while we sing.